former heroin addicts. My wife's a Tennessee girl, and I'm a Bangor, Maine native, and uh, the Lord saw fit to bring our lives together. In a season at uh, Pastor Ken Graves Church in Calvary Chapel, Bangor, Ken is my pastor, uh, my spiritual mentor, my father in the faith, and uh, my wife and I both met during a discipleship program, and, and we're just so grateful, eternally grateful for the ministry there and, and really ministering to those that uh, you know, the world has cast off. And um, as Zach said, two years ago, my wife and I was, you know, serving on staff at Calvary Chapel Bangor, which was a dream job for us. Um, and Ken had given us a, a lot of opportunity. In fact, my wife and I and our, our kids were living in a parsonage right on church campus there in Orrington, Maine. And it, things were just so blessed and we were so happy. We were content. And then, you know, the pandemic hit. And uh, what, a, what a strange time. Brothers and sisters, wouldn't you agree? Do you remember March 2020? And, and, and you didn't know who to believe and what to listen to. And out of abundance of caution, everyone just assumed the worst. And everyone was loving their neighbors. And, and then as time began to drip on, you began to sense that maybe things weren't as some were saying they were. And, well, in the midst of all that, I, you know, I, I really sensed a burden. Maybe I'll say an urgency to go out. Um, I had had a desire to preach the word. I had been under wonderful men who were great preachers and had a desire to preach. And I was intimidated by church planting. I was very much intimidated by the organic style of Calvary Chapel um, to go out. And, you know, as Pastor Chuck always said, where God guides, he provides. And my, you know, skepticism was always, uh, yeah, but what if he doesn't provide? What, what if it doesn't work? You know, and so I was, I, I looked up to men that went out and, and planted churches and I was fearful of that. But 2020 hit and there was an urgency the Lord had pressed upon me in prayer and through his word of what, what am I waiting for? So I went to Pastor Ken, uh, April of 2020 and said, I, I, I believe the Lord is, is calling me to go to our south, to Portland, Maine. And uh, Ken was incredibly gracious and, and supportive. And my wife and I, we took that step of faith with our, our twins, and we began looking for property. We looked for a little tiny place where we could rent and put up a church sign and, and, and open the doors. We had two gentlemen, men who also had graduated the, the discipleship program, former heroin addicts that were serving the Lord in different parts of the country. I'd asked them to pray with me. They now serve as my two assistants. And we opened the doors in June of 2020. Governor Mills in the state of Maine had a 10-person cap on churches at that time. We have a wicked governor, and uh, she, she really has her crosshairs on the church. And you would agree, if, you were, if, if Calvary Chapel was into church growth programs, which we're not, we, we're spirit-led, but if we were, we probably wouldn't open a church then. But in the wisdom of God, we opened the doors when all the other churches were closed. And, and the church has grown the Lord has honored his word. Uh, we're now doing three expositional studies through the week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We've got a youth group, an addiction meeting on Fridays, and God is blessing it. It's such a remarkable thing. So if you could, pray for us. We're, we're actually in a struggle to try and find a building right now. We've actually found one. We've signed a lease right in Portland, but we, uh, we're dealing with, I can't tell if it's just the municipality or the principalities behind the municipality, but we, we can't get a building permit. We're working on that, so pray for us if you could. Um, but it's a privilege to be with you all tonight. And I'm going to ask you to turn to a very uh, well-known portion of Scripture, 
the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Uh, I was blessed to see in the announcements, as Pastor Zach made mention, that I, I think tonight you guys are doing a missions meeting. And uh, may, I, I, I suspect maybe the Lord uh, was leading me in such a way to, to teach this portion of Scripture. A portion of Scripture that many men have gone before me and have probably no doubt taught it way better. But I believe a very important uh, portion of Scripture and something that as a church family in Portland, Maine, we have spent 91 weeks as a church. I counted in preparation. We've 91 Sundays since we opened the doors. And all of those Sundays has been verse by verse, chapter by chapter, going through Matthew. We as a church family there in southern Maine, we just finished Matthew's gospel. And uh, we just spent time in this portion of Scripture and uh, what a blessing. Anyone who has worked in the corporate world, you know at the end of the year, you get that end of the year review, right? And, and I don't know, maybe this is, you know, the way the Holy Spirit put this at the very end of Matthew's gospel. Uh, likewise, I think throughout the church age, especially in the latter days that we're living in, a, a healthy reminder of what is the main thing God's called us to. You guys know in ministry, in our Christian lives, we can get distracted, can't we? And oftentimes with good things. But, uh, you know, famously said, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it gets in the way of the best thing, right? Yes, Jesus Christ, but also the commission from Jesus Christ. So read with me, Matthew 28, those five verses at the end, beginning in verse 16, and then let's take a look at what the Lord wants to speak to us tonight. Beginning in verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Amen. So tonight we'll consider those five verses that are before us this evening. You know, on one hand, you would say this is the ending of Matthew's gospel. Obviously, right? These are the last five verses of a very long narrative. On the other hand, I think rightfully you could say this is the beginning of the gospel. This is now the gospel going forth to the world. Through these 11 men, these disciples and others, we'll see that in the study tonight, uh, men through history, the Duke of Wellington, a British man, a leader, and a godly man in the 19th century. The Duke of Wellington said, these are the marching orders of the church. J. Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China who set that nation ablaze in the underground church. J. Hudson Taylor said, the great commission, it is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. And then, I like this quote. This is from a contemporary Christian author. His name is Jonathan Hayashi. Jonathan Hayashi said, you are either making disciples or you're making excuses. It's well said. Now, consider this. Those verses there, verse 18, 19, and 20, what would be Jesus' great commission, there's a great emphasis given. Maybe you took note there. Four different times the word all was used. He says, all authority has been given to me. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you all ways. 
all of the days. There's great emphasis there. Now, bear with me. Context is important for me. I, I, it helps me. I like to kind of get a bird's eye view. And, and there's some things here I want us to, to put into context. That way we can greatly appreciate what and when and to whom this was spoken to. Now, the chapter began with three women. Matthew doesn't tell us that. We put the four gospel narratives together, and we look at you know, that very first resurrection Sunday morning, early in the morning. John tells us it was still dark when the women left the city and headed to a tomb. Now, we put the four gospels together. We know Mary Magdalene was present that morning. We know that uh, Mary, the mother of James, often referred to as James the Less or James the son of Alphaeus, uh, one of the 12 disciples, that mother was there. And then Salome, right, the wife of Zebedee, who was the mother of the brother disciples, James and John. So we put the four gospels together, and we know that very first resurrection Sunday morning, there were three women who came to the tomb. And you remember, as they arrived to the tomb, the Roman guard was not there. Now, I believe they weren't privy to the fact that the Roman guard had been there. That was a secret meeting only Matthew gives us. But I just want to make sure we, we, we understand, this is something I had learned in study and preparation. The Roman guard, uh, and I'm a military man, former Marine, and so I don't mean any, any offense when I say this, don't picture like the weekend National Guard of the Roman army that was guarding that tomb. The, the language says it was the custodia. The custodia was a 16-man unit of elite warriors. The custodia who was actually guarding the tomb, according to Josh McDowell, I want to read a quote, the men who were assigned by Pontius Pilate and, of course, at the begging of the chief priest to guard that tomb, According to Josh McDowell, he said, this 16-member unit known as the Custodia, they were the special forces of the Praetorian Guard. Each man was trained to protect six square feet of ground. They were working in rotating teams of four. They were to ensure constant surveillance by fresh sets of eyes. Death was the usual penalty for the Custodia that failed in their duty. Josh McDowell says the Custodia's specialty was to guard Roman real estate but they're gone. The women show up and there are 16 sets of foot tracks that have gone back into the city. Why? Because an angel shook their world, literally. And so the, the chapter begins this way. The women, they show up, and you remember, as it tells us in the fifth verse of this chapter, Matthew 28, verse 5, the angel answered the women. He said to the women, do not be afraid. I, I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. As he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So it's important to understand that from this point, chronologically, up until the Great Commission, because there's only a few verses as Matthew records it, Matthew inspired by the Holy Spirit, no doubt, but chronologically a lot transpires before Jesus meets his disciples and others on a mountain in Galilee. It would be an exhaustive study. We, we wouldn't have time tonight. But let me just point out a few things. Again, as a way of context, before Jesus gives this charge, according to what the gospel narratives tell us, we know Jesus first appeared to the women. John chapter 20, verse 11 tells us, Mary Magdalene was weeping by the tomb. 
She thought it was the gardener, remember? That seems to be chronologically the first appearance of the resurrected Christ. Soon after, the other two women on the way back, Matthew 28 verse 9 tells us that. The second appearance of the resurrected Christ, Luke tells us, it was those two disciples. Remember Cleopas and the unnamed disciple on the way or on the road to Emmaus. We know that was actually Sunday evening, um, Luke 24, verse 13. Behold, two of them, that's the disciples, they were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus. It was seven miles from Jerusalem. They talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was, Jesus himself, he drew near and he went with them. Now you guys remember what happens, right? I mean, they can't believe that this one who disappeared doesn't know what's going on. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, they say, that don't know what has happened? You can imagine, right? But the Son of God, it says, he opened the scriptures to them, expounding in all the things concerning him through Moses and through the prophets. When, according to what Dr. Luke tells us, when Jesus arrives with those two in Emmaus, he sits down and eats with them. He says he broke bread. Now, that, to me, would be the hint of when they got it. No doubt they saw the holes that the nails had put in his hand. It tells us in Luke 24, their eyes were opened. They knew him and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, did not our heart burn within us when he talked with us on the road? While he opened the scriptures to us, they rose up that very hour. They returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11. That would then be the third appearance chronologically. According to what Luke will later tell us, those two, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, they make it back to Jerusalem. They do a U-turn. They leave Emmaus and go back. That's what a revelation of Christ will do, won't it? We'll do a U-turn. They go back into Jerusalem, and they find the 11 minus 1. Thomas wasn't there. It tells us in Luke 24, verse 36, now the third appearance... It says, as they, those two disciples, said these things to the ten disciples, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. He said, peace unto you. But they were terrified, and they were frightened, and they supposed they had seen a spirit. Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? When he had said this, he showed them his hands, and he showed them his Feet. Now, what the other gospel writer tells us, it was during that appearance, now to the, what will be the apostles, that the first born-again experience of the New Testament happens. Remember, John says it was at that time when he first appeared on that Sunday night in an upper room. John 20, verse 22 says, Jesus then breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Eight days later, bear with me, eight days later, the next appearance it tells us that then appearing now to Thomas, it would be in John chapter 20, verse 24. Thomas called the twin, one of the 12. He was not with them when Jesus had first came. The other disciples therefore said to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe, right? Hence the nickname that Thomas has famously had for a long time, Doubting Thomas. But after eight days, eight days since the resurrection, still in Jerusalem, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. Thomas was now with them. Jesus then came, it says in John chapter 20, with the doors now being shut, and he stood again in their midst, saying, peace unto you. He said to Thomas, reach your fingers here. 
Look at my hands. Reach your hands here. Put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen, yet believed. So one week has passed. All of, now the eleven, have seen with their own eyes the resurrected Christ. The women from Galilee, like Mary, Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, have seen the resurrected Christ. Cleopas and the unnamed disciple have seen the resurrected Christ. And what we can gather from the Gospels, church family, is then they begin to go north. Remember where home is for these people? is Galilee, 70 miles north. They came weeks before with Jesus before the cross, remember, to celebrate the Passover. Can you imagine the conversation as they head back north? Excited? Shocked? Confused? I believe they were confused. You know, we find out when they get back into Galilee, you might say the first New Testament backslide happens. Peter, remember? Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. <laughs> now, that's not like fishing like we go fishing, right? We take our, our sons fishing for a hobby. That's not what Simon Peter was doing. Simon Peter was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And he gets back home, and clearly the Great Commission had not yet been given, and he's confused. In fact, it tells us in John chapter 21, verse 3, when Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing, there was a handful of others, and John mentions them by name, who said, we're going with you. They go back to their old lifestyle, the, you know, the Galilean fishermen. They go to the same lake next to the same beach where Jesus had called them three and a half years later. How gracious that Jesus interrupted that backslide, right? And remember they looked on the shore? And it was after a great catch. And all of a sudden Peter began to realize, wait, we've been through this before. And he looks on the shore and there's a silhouette and he recognizes his Lord. He hops out of the boat, he swims to shore. And you rem remember what happens, the restoration of Peter, right? The breakfast by the Sea of Galilee. The question goes forth in John 21. Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? You guys know what happens, but let's just stop and consider. What was Jesus pointing to when he's having a conversation with Simon Peter on a beach when he says, do you love me more than these? There's a lot of conjecture. I personally believe he's pointing to the fishing gear, the net, the boat. You know what the scripture says, especially men. You know, if a man doesn't work, he's worse than an infidel if he doesn't provide for his family. It's a good thing to work. We're commanded to work. We must make a living for our families. But remember, a good thing becomes a bad thing if it gets in the way of the best thing. Simon Peter, it says in John 21, do you love me more than these? Ah, oh, you know I love you, Lord. Remember the answer? He says, all right, feed my lambs. A second time, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. A third and a final time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He says, you know I love you, Lord. Peter, feed my sheep. It's then the last we can chronologically put together of what Jesus did and how he did it and to whom he did it on those 40 days after his resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Dr. Luke simply just tells us that Jesus had been seen during 40 days speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 
All we know is eventually the disciples at the urging of the resurrected Christ will go back into Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost and that's where he will then ascend from the Mount of Olives. So we kind of get the picture here, right? I I believe all that has transpired. They're up in Galilee. They've all been eyewitnesses. Time has gone by. And then it tells us in verse 16, the 11 disciples, they went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. This is the meeting that happens. Now, there's different uh, opinions. I believe what seems to be the most accurate uh, geographic location of the mountain would be Mount Arbel. Uh, You you can look on a map today. You're looking at the Sea of Tiberias or the the Lake of Galilee. The highest point of topography on the the northwestern shore is Mount Arbel. I believe probably that's where Jesus appointed the meeting for these men. Why? Well, most believe the Sermon on the Mount was preached there. Most believe Mount Arbel is where Jesus multiplied the boys' lunch to the 5,000 men. I believe it was Mount Arbel where Jesus had three and a half years appointed those men. Note takers, Mark chapter 3, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Mark 3, verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountain. He called to him those he himself wanted. They came to him and he appointed the 12. So I believe that's the mountain that uh, the, the, the resurrected Christ is meeting before he gives this charge. And it says in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, right? Two categories. It's no different 2,000 years later. There's they who worship, and there's some that doubt. Wouldn't you agree? But let me consider this. These two categories, we we should stop and consider, hence the introduction and the context that we've just gone through together, The disciples, they've been eyewitnesses. I believe they've been convinced of this resurrected Christ. Uh, The women, uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary and Salome and others, they've been convinced. So we know probably the they, those who have a posture of worship, they're the ones who are meeting him there. But then there's also the some. And I believe at this point, it is my strong conviction that when the resurrected Christ gives the great commission in which you and I are looking at tonight, I believe this is when the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, says at one time, the resurrected Christ appeared to 500 men. Let me read it for you. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. We don't get it in the four Gospels, but Paul, by the Holy Spirit, talking to the church in Corinth, he goes, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was risen again on the third day according to the Scriptures. He was seen first by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom, Paul says, the greater part remain to the present. It is my personal conviction that this great commission was given not just to the apostles, but also to the B apostles and the C apostles and everyone. The great commission doesn't go to the youth minister alone, to the senior pastor, to the missionaries. It went to all who would hear. And I am firmly under the conviction that this place, Galilee, where Jesus had done so much of his ministry, where he had done so many miracles. I mean, can you imagine when that missionary team of the apostles and the women came from Jerusalem and for nearly 40 days they're telling the entire region about this resurrected Christ and then he appoints a time to go on a mountain? I believe, without a doubt, 
there was a large group there who had not yet seen the resurrected Christ, and it was they, that group, that doubted. It was consistent with everyone else's first encounter with the resurrected Christ. Mary doubted at the tomb. She thought it was the gardener, right? The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they doubted. They thought he was a stranger who hadn't read the news. The apostles, they doubted when they first saw. They thought it was a ghost, right? We saw that. Thomas needed tangible proof. And so likewise, this first group doubts. And this is what I want to really focus on for a second. Before we move on and we look at really that great commission, and I think this is very important. There's only one other time in the New Testament the word doubted is used. The same word, the Greek word. It's used by the same author, Matthew. And the, the word that it refers to here, those on the mountains, you know, some worship, but some doubted. We read there in verse 17. The only other time that word is used is when Matthew records the events in Matthew 14 about Peter walking on the water. Remember? Let me read it for you. It tells us that Peter in the boat shouted in Matthew 14. He said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink, yelling, Lord, save me. Jesus stretched out his hand, caught him, and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In other words, as it was for Peter, who had taken his eyes off the Lord and focused on the storm, I believe this is what the Great Commission does to you and I. Those who doubt, we get our eyes off of the main thing. And we get focused on all these other things. And there are those who doubted and the Great Commission addresses that. And I wonder, maybe, humbly I say and I ask, because I've asked myself this, maybe this evening, likewise, that would be someone in the hearing. A, a gracious and a friendly reminder, but a command of what is our duty. I mean, sure, Christ was risen from the dead for all those who were witnessing him on Mount Arbel that day, right? Christ was risen from the dead. At the same time, Rome was still ruling in the day. There was fear. They're looking at a resurrected Christ on a mountain in Galilee, and there's still holes in his hands. It's like a sober reminder that there's going to be resistance to this gospel. There was fear in their hearts. How could there not be? It was a brutal, brutal crucifixion. Not to mention the flogging and the scourging and the mockery and the beard being pulled out and the spitting and all that went with it. And so, of course, they're excited, but like Peter on the water, he took his eyes off the main thing and he began to doubt. And I believe that is why Jesus then, to that large audience, including you and I, he then says those wonderful words in verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, aren't you grateful your Bible doesn't say some authority, most authority, or eventually all authority. That's not what it says, right? 2,000 years ago, the resurrected Christ says all authority. I mean, let's consider that adjective for a minute. You know, the preposition in the Greek is an adjective. It can be used in the individual sense. Uh, each, every, any, everyone, everything, 
in context of authority. It can be used in the collective sense, all things, every manner, any form, whatsoever. So Jesus says, all authority over all things, in all places, in all forms, has been given to me for all of time. That's a profound statement, wouldn't you agree? It's a remarkably profound statement. And guys, again, who's hearing those words? Flesh and blood, who's there that day? Can we consider? Are there people who are hearing those words who had already experienced his authority? I mean, Mary Magdalene, according to Dr. Luke chapter 8, verse 2, she had not one, two, three, four, five, or six demons. She had seven demons cast out. She knew the authority of Christ. Do you believe since they're right above the hills of Capernaum that Jairus was there on that mountain? Of course Jairus and his daughter were there. You know, the daughter that was risen from the dead. She knew about the authority that Christ had preached. Do you think maybe the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years, who remember how Mark records it, that she spent all of her living, all of her livelihood on physicians and only grew worse? There are people in the room that understand that. Our culture understands that. That woman knew the authority of Christ. Do you think the former paralytic, remember in Capernaum, maybe a year or two before this meeting on a mountain, the one who had four faithful friends that ripped open a thatched roof and dropped him down in the midst, and the Son of God says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I'm under the conviction that when that man first heard that, he's saying, my sins? No, no, my legs, my legs, right? He says, no, son, your sins are forgiven, but that you may know that I am the Son of God, and that I have the power to forgive sins. Arise. Do you think that man was happy? He was very glad. He was grateful to walk up on that mountain on his own two feet that day to meet the resurrected Christ and to hear all authority has been given These men and women knew that. They'd experienced it. Brothers and sisters, isn't that many of us in the room? Certainly for me. My my father and I were walking in tonight to the service. Zach cries too. I've seen it. I've seen him cry. (laughs) Every once in a while. I I walked into service tonight. And, and, you know, my dad just said, who would have thought this is something that would have been happening? Just because my dad and my mom been through the horror of heroin addiction. They're by my side. Marco Island, a few hours from here. I remember years ago, 2012 maybe, coming off a terrible detox in the little one-bedroom condo my parents had. A 25-year-old interrupting their life again, trying to get clean and sober. Seriously contemplating ending my life with my parents' handgun under the bed. Miserable. Couldn't find freedom. But the word of God that sets people free set me free. I've experienced the authority of Christ in my life. Haven't many of you? That's the authority that he says, all of it's been given to me. Therefore, go. Kind of paints a different picture, wouldn't you agree? You would probably, you know, looking at the news that's happening around the world, wherever we stand, and we may have within the body of Christ some disagreements, we probably can all agree that there is an authority complex going on in the world right now, right? I mean, there are people vying for power and, and it, you know, it's, it's a little bit tense. Aren't you grateful that as Christians and as followers of Christ, we don't have to enter into that rat race, that we don't have to wonder who has the authority in our life, who has the authority over our eternity, that he has the reign of our hearts, the reign of our salvation, the reign of our lives forever. 
It's not Washington, it's not Moscow, it's not Beijing, it's not Dr. Fauci, it's not Soros, it's not, you know, the list goes on. No, the regal authority of the king goes to Jesus Christ. And he's there saying to a group of people, all authority is mine. You remember how the Apostle Paul says it, Jesus in Philippians 2, humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him, he has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, both those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's all his. And in light of all that, he says in verse 19, go, go therefore. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go. Now, maybe it's elementary, but we can agree. Uh, step number one, go, right? He's, he's saying, just go. Right? There's urgency. Now, listen, for many of us in the room, our going sometimes is just a conversation, right? Our going that he's calling us to is sometimes the very place of, of where we work, and we're, and we're now going in his authority and we're going in the, in the command in which he's called us to. For some of us, it's, you know, Africa. <laughs> it, it, it's a different part of the world. It's a different continent. It, it, you know what the Lord is calling you to, whatever present season you're in. But he's saying, go, make disciples. I, I want to read something from the Prince of Preachers. I know your pastor thinks very highly of Charles Spurgeon, as do I. In context of this, the, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, there was a day, uh, April 21st, 1861, he delivered a message, and the name of that message, the, the title of it, was The Missionary's Charge. This is what uh, Charles Spurgeon, just a, a brief portion of that sermon. He says, brethren, the heathen are perishing. Shall we let them perish? His name is blasphemed. Shall we be quiet and still? The honor of Christ is cast into the dust and his foes revile his person, resist his throne. Shall we his soldiers suffer this and not find our hands feeling for the hilt of our sword, that very sword of the spirit? It's the word of God. Our Lord delays his coming. Shall we begin to sleep or to eat or to be drunk? Shall we not rather gird up the loins of our mind and cry unto him, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Our risen Lord tells us, Spurgeon says, Go, teach them. Teach them no more to despise me. Teach them no more to think that my father is an angry deity. Teach them to bow the knee, to kiss the son, to find peace for all of their troubles, a balm for all of their woes. Go, speak as I have spoken. Weep as I have wept. Invite as I have invited. Exhort, entreat, beseech, pray as I have done before you. Tell them to come unto me if they are weary and heavy laden. I will give them rest. Say unto them, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, but had rather he would turn and live. What a generous and a gracious command from Christ, says Spurgeon. Go, therefore, teach all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. What a reminder, right? Everything you and I do as Christians, it should be a supplement to the going and to the preaching. His instruction to the, the church is to go and to baptize and to make disciples, right? You know, disciplined followers of Christ. You would agree with me, brothers and sisters. At large in America, do we see a church that lacks discipline? Certainly we do. And that's maybe a nice way of saying it. There's a church that lacks discipline. 
And maybe some are, are, are thinking in the audience that day when he says that, maybe some are thinking, how do we make disciplined followers of Jesus Christ? And aren't we grateful for the next verse? We just see the simplicity of it. He says in verse 20, teach them to observe all things I have commanded you. That's it. There's no but. How do you make disciples of Jesus Christ? Teach them to observe or to obey or to take heed, to consider, to watch, to apply all the things I have commanded you. You read to them, you explain to them, you model for them all of the word of God. Now, again, I think it's very simple. I'm not saying it's easy. I know I wasn't easy to be discipled. Goodness, no. There's some in the room who would testify of that. <laughs> I know I, I wasn't easy, but it was profoundly simple, right? Jesus says, if you would continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Continuing and applying in all of the word of God. Parents, that's what we do for our children, right? We don't expect the youth pastor to do it, although he plays a part. We don't expect just the pastor on Sundays to do it for us, although he plays a part, that we all are in this together. You know, Barna Research published a study in 2018. You can look it up on your own. It concluded that 51% in 2018, 51% of American evangelicals do not know what the Great Commission is or where they can find it in their Bible. 51%, according to this large study of Barna Research done. My personal conviction is that that percentage is probably even higher of those who claim Christ but don't know the gospel. Many people believe the gospel is Jesus loves you. That's not the gospel. We can agree, right? Now, that's part of the gospel, but that's not the gospel. In fact, you know, I'm convinced that there's countless souls living today who have found a false sense of comfort in God loves them while they live radically in rebellion to him and his word. The gospel isn't Jesus loves you. There's more to it than that. In fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You know, repentance is part of the gospel. Sin, turning from it, it's at the heart of the message. The death, burial, and resurrection is the how of the message. That's the good news. The same power that rose him from the dead lives in us. He allows us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. But no doubt, I believe that our, our nation, the West, the world, it is completely illiterate with not just the commission, but what the truth of the gospel is. One theologian said it this way. Too much sugar preaching leads to truth decay. It's true, isn't it? It's so true. He says, teach them to observe, to keep, to heed, to obey God's holy word, right? What a beautiful thing. And then he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, amen. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Now, brothers and sisters, I know you would agree with me. The end has never seemed so near as it does now, right? I mean, literally, we're, you know, you're now hearing warnings and threats and they're running drills on nuclear warfare. It's, it's shocking how things just suddenly happened in the world, right? 
I mean, those who've been studying the Bible for way longer than me, those who've been serving Christ for way longer than me, you see there's a sense of excitement because they can't believe all that's happening on a biblical scale. I mean, you know, I mean, maybe it's just me, but, you know, the mark of the beast and the one world order, it still sounded a bit sci-fi. I believed it. It was in the book of Revelation, but it was a bit sci-fi until 2020 and 21 and 22. And now you're like, not only is the technology available, it's happening. You're seeing things. No doubt the enemy's been effective in the last few years, sowing division, hasn't he? And in this context of Jesus saying, I'll never leave you, I mean, let's be honest, doesn't seem as though some of our leaders in this nation have forsaken us? It seems that way. Can we agree that at a large scale, our media has forsaken us? Okay, in America, has common sense evaded us a bit, <laughs> right? We're like, what is going on? Many around the world, many in our nation, they believe the church has forsaken them, pledging its allegiance to the culture rather than to Christ. The woke church that is truthfully asleep. Sad. And yet we get this beautiful promise as Matthew ends the gospel, a timeless promise, from Jesus Christ himself, who says, all authority is mine. Go into all of the world, teach them all I have commanded you, and I will be with you all ways. It's a beautiful thing. And not just baptizing saints into the church, but at the same time, we are rescuing sinners out of hell. Let me just end with a few quotes concerning what we looked at tonight. Charles Swindoll, he said it this way, we must not treat the Great Commission like it's the Great Suggestion. That's well said. John Faulkner, a 19th century British missionary, he says, I have but one candle of life to burn. I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. I keep quoting that to all my main folks in the church that are trying to go to Florida. I said, hey, the light shines bright in the dark. Stick around here for a while. Jim Elliott he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amen. Can I do one more quote for you? Maybe you've heard this before, but in light of all that we're looking at, C.S. Lewis says something, allegedly, according to what I, I researched, 1948, this quote came out. C.S. Lewis said this all those decades ago. He said, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age, the question is asked. I am tempted to reply, why, as you have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or live in the same way in which a Viking age, which raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. Quite a high percentage of us were going to die in a very unpleasant way. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances in which death itself was not a chance but a certainty. 
This is the first point to be made. The first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, then let that bomb come and find us doing sensible and human and Christian things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing our children, reading to our children, playing tennis and chatting with our friends over a drink or a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, but a microbe can do that. But they need not to dominate our minds. That well said. Would you guys pray with me this evening? Lord, we look at your words there in the end of Matthew's gospel. A reminder of what it is you have commissioned us to do. Lord, we live in an age, we acknowledge, where the distractions seem to be everywhere. And Lord... Many of those things are good things. But Lord, I pray for myself and for all of us in the attendance tonight that again, we were reminded of the one who commissions us, the one who conquered Calvary, who defeated death, who paved our way into the eternal heavens, the one who bought us with the precious blood. All authority given and likewise, you commission us to go, to make disciples, to be disciples. Lord, I pray that we would always be comforted in the fact that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, the world certainly has lost its mind. We're seeing it everywhere we look. And Lord, we think about how many of those souls are so hungry for the truth. Lord, the same way that many of us have experienced your authority, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to share that and bring others to it, that we would draw others unto you. Lord, thank you for Pastor Zach, his wife Amanda. Thank you for the team here at Calvary Chapel, Miami. Thank you for a room full of believers on a Wednesday night. Lord, I pray you would commission again every one of us. Lord, I pray you'd pour out your spirit in our lives. I pray for our children. I pray you'd help us to be godly men and women, moms and dads, and that you would help us to live boldly in these days. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace and peace to you, church family.